0: Julian Emanuel with us uh, right now with BTIG, of course, expert in equities and derivatives. Julian, what does the derivative market say to you right now? What are the indicators and in derivatives that gives you direction in regular common stock?
1: Sure. So, so yesterday was, was critical in our view because as you made a lower low in the S&P 500 and all the major index, indexes, you didn't make a higher high in the VIX. And when you put that in the context of the fact that between limit down Sunday night, then massive rally on the back of the Fed, and then a collapse, a total movement of almost 24% of the value of the S&P 500 from low to high to low, um, it basically tells you that for the most part, sellers are exhausted. They may not be finished, but they are exhausted at the moment. And so that's the start of a bottoming process in our view.
2: Julian, really hard to make the argument that things are bottoming in equity when we haven't seen that happen in credit yet. High yield spreads out to about 1,100 basis points. The non-energy component getting out to near 1,000 now. And the direction of travel is still concerning. Can you construct an argument that equities are bottoming absent of a bottoming out in credit?
1: Uh, Well, I I think basically, you know, you you spoke about it uh, a little while ago in that, you know, the government is now Uh, In the business of picking winners and losers more than perhaps in in 2008, I I would argue uh, well more than than 2008. And clearly the priority is on the employers, the, you know, the the larger companies. Um, This will be a process that will get managed. Ultimately, the Fed will oversee the high yield market. Um, And as you said, there will be bankruptcies. But the fact is, is that, you know, the, for the most part, you tend to look through these types of things. And I would suggest that when you look at the first quarter of 2016, and obviously uh, the, the bankruptcies in, in high yield will be, you know, far in excess uh, of that, that, uh, you know, down 30, 32 uh, percent could be the beginning of, of discounting in the equity market.
3: So Julian, there is a question about the fiscal response. You were talking about the government and support for some of these companies. But I want to go back to the Fed and trying to support market functioning. And I'm trying to parse through market functioning versus credit risk. And I'm looking, for example, at some mortgage funds that are unable to meet margin calls. Invesco Mortgage Capital, the latest one, uh, crossing the Bloomberg earlier today. You're seeing a lot of distress, fire sales uh, over the weekend trying to get rid of some of the assets to meet redemptions, and margin calls. At what point is this going to be an ongoing problem for the system versus just idiosyncratic potholes that are blowing up amid the volatility? Well,
1: I, I think it actually has been a, a systemic problem, which is why you've seen the Fed uh, do what, it, what it's doing. From our point of view, you really want to look at commercial paper um, and you want to look at, you know, frankly, uh, trading and, and clearing volume uh, in in all of the fixed income markets, because to us, <clears throat> one of the interesting things uh, about this environment is that if you look at it, the equity markets have functioned much, much you know far superior in terms of liquidity than the fixed income markets. Uh, we will be watching <clears throat> commercial paper very, yeah. very carefully.
0: Julian, what have you? This may be an unfair question, but I'm going to go that it. it's unfair Tuesday. Uh, <laughs> what have you learned about active versus passive in this crater? I mean, ACTA has been waiting for a crater for years to say active is better than passive. you have any wisdom on that?
1: Well, what we're, we're learning is, is that the combination of, of, of the government intervening is causing active versus passive to look a little different than perhaps we might have expected. Um, and, you know, typically you might see some more of the value type areas start to emerge and, and stabilize first. But again, when you look at it and you think about the weighting in the index, uh, you really, you know, you look at at the value of technology, financials, healthcare, and communication services, and they dominate uh, the index as a whole. And those happen to be the areas that the government is likely to pick, you know, winners over losers.
0: John Farrow, is Apple looking for a bailout? I don't think Apple's looking for a bailout. I think
2: that's a silver lining on a morning like this Wait, morning. Wait, I'm sitting
0: on the couch. You know, John, underneath my couch is probably three pair of AirPods, AirPods. that have been lost. Yeah.
2: yeah. You're supporting the company still. I'm pleased Let to hear. Let me down
0: there. Keep on. Well, I'm going to do go that. down Lord. You do that.
2: Julian, I want to transition to a really complex question right now that has got a whole lot more fuel in the last 24 hours, and it's something investors increasingly might have to think about. I don't want you to speak directly to the health issue, and I know that's difficult at a moment like this, but just explore the following with me. The president is making it pretty clear that he's thinking about the cost-benefit analysis. And it's a tragic story and it's an ugly process of remaining shut down and whether the cure is worse than the illness. And the reason I think investors need to start thinking about this is if they pull back on the mitigation efforts too early and then we have to think about bringing them back in in the summer and bringing them back in in the fall. I just wonder how choppy and how messy this could get if we don't shut it down all at once? For markets, that is. From a markets perspective, from what you hear from the president at the moment, Julian, how complex is this issue?
1: So if you look at the evolution of the last 16 hours or so, it's very clear that part of the reason that the market started rallying overnight is because there was an expectation that the president intends to bring the economy back sooner than expected. You know, you can opine on what the health implications of that are um, but there's no question about that from the markets point of view that that is is, is how we react look it, it's an incredibly difficult um, trade-off and and what we, we're thinking is that the actions that the Fed took yesterday um, in concert with what we certainly hope and and honestly if we don't get a bill today or tomorrow the level yeah. of irresponsibility responsibility in Washington <coughs> will just be you know off the charts um that the combination of those things can get us you know to manage the economic trough into the summer but the real question is you know in mit- mitigation you know do people want to get on airplanes and eat out come the fall we need to get to that point Julian Manuel, great to catch up with you joining us from Join, BTIG on the market
0: without question folks The Bloomberg Surveillance Interview of the Day on this crisis. She is out of Northampton, Massachusetts and Smith College where she took a liking to the Krebs cycle and then had a sterling academic career in microbiology including uh, time at Columbia University, her Columbia University and the University of Washington program which is world class. Angela Rasmussen uh, joins us now. Angela, help me with the density of population whether it is Italy or Wuhan Or Brooklyn, New York, the density of population seems to be a determining factor.
4: Yeah, so viruses have to spread between people. Um, Viruses can be picked up from the environment, but they generally don't last long on, say, surfaces, for example. Um, So in general, uh, when the population is more dense, you're at more risk of coming across somebody who is also infected who could possibly transmit a virus to you.
5: So, Angela, what have we learned from Wuhan and from northern Italy uh, about the timeline here, flattening that curve? Where are we kind of here in the U.S. on that curve?
4: Well, it's very difficult to say because our testing capacity is not at the point where we can truly accurately determine the prevalence of SARS-CoV-2 in our population. However, um, and I'm cautioning this by saying I'm not an epidemiologist, but all of the current epidemiological models that I've seen suggest that we're still on the uptick. Yeah. We can expect more cases.
0: I mean, uh, this is so important, folks, and the FT and the New York Times have done great charts on this. And, Angela, they're log charts, and the answer is you want to bend the curve over, as Paul Sweeney says. The Asians have successfully done this, period, and in Europe it's a struggle. What's so important is the slope of those trajectories. Our slope, Angela, is frightening. How do we bring that slope down?
4: Unfortunately, because we don't know the prevalence in our population very accurately right now, the only way to do that is by these large-scale, very strict social distancing measures. Okay, then, then how do doing. you
0: respond? I don't mean to interrupt, but just because of time, Dr. Rasmussen, how do you respond to the president's one-hour-and-48-minute uh, briefing yesterday, which was to get America back to work? How do you as a grizzled Pro respond to that?
4: I was very concerned about that statement. I don't think that we're anywhere near the point where we can begin to say that. Um, I think that it does need to be evaluated uh, as we go along. Um, I don't think, though, that it's safe to say that people can go back to work unless we can determine if they have been infected before and may have protective immunity.
5: So, Doctor, what is the sense of the Treatment. How do you think the treatment will evolve over the next several months? Obviously, there's not a COVID-19 treatment uh, flu shot, for example. But how do you think the treatment will evolve?
4: I think if there is a treatment, and certainly some of the treatments that have been discussed—hydroxychloroquine, uh, remdesivir, for example—are in clinical trials now. It's incumbent on us to to complete those clinical trials as quickly as possible because having an available treatment that's effective could really dramatically change this for all of us.
5: So a sense of timing on that. I know it's, you know, we usually kind of measure these things in years. Uh, is there a possibility to compress that to months? Yes,
4: yeah, certainly um, for uh, chloroquine, um, hydroxychloroquine, and azithromycin and remdesivir, those trials I believe are already ongoing. Uh, a trial has already been completed in China Um, on two HIV drugs that unfortunately did not turn out to work. But um, since the remdesivir and chloroquine trials have also been going on, I think we can expect it to be a matter of weeks, um, 8 to 12 weeks is what I've heard, versus six months to a
5: year. So, Doctor, it's interesting, Tom. You know, it's, it's just kind of we're still in that upward part of the curve here in the United States, certainly in New York City. So, Dr. yeah, doctor, I mean, I, Yeah, yeah. You know,
0: I, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but uh, thank you, John Tucker, for sending in uh, this headline. Mr. Kudlow at the White House says, quote, may try to reopen parts of the economy around month's end. Uh, Dr. Rasmussen, what's that part of the economy going to be? Is it going to be that famous coffee house up in Northampton? Are they going to try to open the Iron Horse Cafe just to keep the economy going? I mean, what do they open?
4: I, that is an excellent question, and I have no idea. Um, I do think that in many places, uh, some of those service businesses um, and retail are still open. Uh, I know that not in New York and not in Seattle, where I'm calling from right now. Um, but I, I really don't know what parts of the economy uh, Mr. Kudlow is speaking of. Um, I think, yeah. though, that indiscriminately opening oh. up parts of the economy is, is a bad idea without further testing. Oh.
0: Thank you so much for being with us. Angela Rasmussen of Columbia University in in Seattle, and of course, University of Washington. Thank you so much for being with us. What we've been trying to do is go to experts in the field, whether it's Peter Steyer, we talked to at Mount Sinai, Brooklyn yesterday. Robert Crandall joining us, the emeritus chairman of American Airlines earlier. Now, Randall Krosner, the former governor of the Federal Reserve System. Randy Krosner joins from the Booth School, Chicago. Uh, Professor Krosner, wonderful to have you with us. I want to go to the mathiness. There is a point in physics where you forget about the fanciness of the equation and you just look at the magnitude or what's called the amplitude. Do we have any understanding of the amplitudes of this shock, the size of the shock we're confronting?
6: We really haven't seen something like this before because this is both a natural disaster and one that, in order to respond to the natural disaster, we're taking policy actions that are significantly slowing the economy. And I don't think we've ever seen that specific combination before.
0: We have not seen it before, but we have to sort our way through it. Do the formulas and the theories work here, or is it just, just to throw a lot of money at the wall? No, no, I think they still,
6: uh, uh, you know, we don't have, uh, you know, we don't know for sure. But I think we still have guidance from, uh, from other examples of the past, whether it's from the, uh, the pandemic in the early part of the 20th century or other challenges that, uh, that have occurred. I think it's really clear that um, the lessons from the financial crisis in 2008, 2009 are that a fundamental is that you need to keep the financial system operating. And I think that's what the Fed is trying to do. Obviously, the shock is coming from something very different than uh, the mortgage market. Um, but I think the lessons have been learned there, and they've stood up a lot of the programs that we did uh, back when I was there a decade ago, and uh, they're doing new things, which I think is great.
3: Professor Crossner, you, so you I want to talk a little bit about those new things that, that you talk about. Do they have anything left based on your experience in the crisis era uh, at the Federal Reserve and based on what we're seeing right now?
6: Well, they've done a lot, and a lot of this is still being implemented will see the exact magnitude, um, and as you see, they're able to revise some of these. They were originally buying uh, $500 billion worth of treasuries, $100 billion worth of mortgage-backed securities, and now that'll be unlimited. And so um, they may, uh, and they are starting to enter other markets, and they can increase the uh, their firepower in purchasing assets in those, uh, those other markets. Uh, they are introducing or talked about introducing a Main Street uh, lending program. I think that could be helpful for small and medium-sized businesses and for, for consumers. So I think they've done a lot. I think there's still more ammunition left, both in terms of the magnitude of programs they've already announced as well as some specific programs like a Main Street lending program.
2: Professor, we've talked a lot about what they've done, and they've done a lot. Let's talk about what they've achieved. What have they achieved in the last couple of weeks with this whole range of tools that they've basically deployed to really get at the functioning of the market and the financial conditions as well?
6: So I think the markets are still functioning, not perfectly, but much better than if the Fed had and other central banks hadn't undertaken the actions that uh, that they had. But when uh, the shock comes from something like uh, a virus, the Fed can do what's necessary, but it's not sufficient. And I think um, the reason that we haven't seen um, uh, the markets stop, uh, the, uh, stopping the tumult in the markets is because it's now with the health authorities and fiscal authorities, and there have been mixed messages. Some countries doing more, some countries doing less. Um, it's uh, obviously the debates in Congress over, you know, what kind of package, whether the package will be passed and when um, that's creating a lot of uh, a lot of uncertainty and tumult.
2: A lot of division in Washington, DC. so let's talk about how the effort in Washington could complement what we've seen on the monetary policy side. What do you need to see literally yesterday, as soon as possible from Washington on the political side of things? I think getting an agreement
6: that in and of itself, Will be very valuable to the market to see that, ah, yes, they can get something together and they can act against this, um, uh, this, uh, uh, th- this pandemic. Then, in particular, I think it would be really valuable to make sure that it's very well focused on uh, what are the issues. So first, making sure that there's sufficient funding for uh, health care and, uh, um, and giving incentives for healthcare workers in retirement to come come back in, that's I think something very important. Second, making sure that uh, vulnerable people continue to be able to to get income, and in particular that their incentive is not to go into work, but to stay home during this period, but still be able to uh, to receive income. You can do that through sending checks to people. You can do that through uh, various uh, support to and medium-sized business to get them to continue to pay uh, the wages of people who would be uh, be staying at home. Yeah. Um, those, those are some of the, the first things that I would uh, I would focus on.
3: Professor Krosner, last week and even the week before we were really talking about a financial crisis in addition to the economic crisis unfolding. Has the Fed effectively stopped that? Have we avoided a financial crisis at this point or is it too early to say?
6: Well, given my experiences back in 2008, 2009, I never say never about anything. But I think that the Fed actions have been crucial in avoiding a uh, financial crisis so far. And I think if the fiscal and health authorities act in, um, expeditiously and effectively, uh, then I think we will have, uh, will have been able to, to get through that. Uh, but it really de- will depend on the size of the economic shock. And and that's now well, the um, the, uh, the court of the uh, the fiscal and monetary uh, fiscal and, and health authorities.
0: And now, as we do for surveillance, it's Math Tuesday with Randall Croster of <laughs> Chicago. Randy, Paul Wilmot, the giant of Imperial College, and a guy named Taleb gave a rave review years ago to Kent Osmond's masterpiece iceberg risk, which was basically a complete refutation of the central limit theorem. Are we, are we doing that again? Are we so fancy in our Krosner-like math certitude <laughs> that once again, we've learned that the once in a lifetime event comes along every 12 years? <laughs> well, yeah, um,
6: well I, I, I think if you, uh, we've talked about this before, I think on, uh, on your program, that I get worried when other people aren't worried. So I focus a lot on um, uh, doing scenario planning, doing stress tests and risk analysis for things where you're just not sure, you don't have the data for it, it hasn't happened, but let's see what if. Can you, can you withstand yeah. something like that? And so these are the things that you have to, to think about. Can you perfectly plan for them? Of course not. Can you have uh, better readiness for them? Yes. And I think in some sense, we learned a number of lessons from uh, 2008, 2009, and it helped to allow the Fed to respond much more rapidly because they didn't have to create programs like the commercial paper facility and the money market facility and, uh, and uh, so many of the others whole cloth like we did. <coughs> they could stand them up quickly, and that gives them an opportunity to ramp them up, move them to well, scale, and then do some new things.
0: To borrow a phrase from uh, Nicholas Taleb, uh, and that would be uh, just simply skin in the game. I guess we've all got skin in the game now with this horrific crisis. I don't mean to make a joke about it, uh, folks, but Randy, the recovery rate, the glide path to recovery, we forget out of the Depression, it took a war and stimulus of a war to get equities to lift back to where they were in 1929 after 1937. How do you envision Mm -hmm. a recovery here to Dow 29,000?
6: So I think that ultimately will be related to uh, the underlying economics. And uh, can we make sure as best as possible to try to make this a V-shaped recovery, rather than a U-shape or an L-shape sort of of thing? That's is out of the hands of the fed um the fed had a very important role in making sure we we had a recovery in uh, over the last decade here they can make sure we can avoid a financial crisis but the recovery pieces will have to come on mm-hmm. the health side and on the, the fiscal side well. if we can get agreements if we can get some movement forward i think we can get there and hopefully make it much more rapid yeah. than in uh, in the Great Depression.
0: Professor Krauser, thank you so much. Greatly, greatly appreciated. Thanks, John, Randy. was that too much math? No, John, I think it was, was just, that enough. Too much math? just enough. Just enough. Just enough. Robert Crandall with us now, who is identified with the airline business starting with TWA years ago and then his leadership at American Airlines, single-handedly inventing frequent flyer miles and the rest of it, and now a well-preserved 85th year, and he joins us this morning. Bob Crandall, we're so honored to have you uh, with us. You have seen the ups and downs of airline bankruptcy and bailout. Does the aviation industry need another bailout or nationalization this morning?
7: Well, I do think it needs help, Tom. I mean, they, they keep in mind, uh, you know, we've only got one big inner-city transportation system, and that's the airline business. The airline business and associated travel <coughs> businesses are, you know, they, they account for millions of jobs. So we've got to keep the airline industry functional. And I, I do think at the moment that what we're going to have to do is make a public investment <laughs> Uh, in the airline industry to s- sort of sustain it during a period of time when cash is just running out the door in a river. So I th- and I think the off is the, uh, this this is probably a good public investment that needs to be offset right. with some controls. I mean, we can't, we can't have the airline business taking public money and then turning around and using its free cash flow to buy back uh, shares, which is what it's done over the last six years. And we we need to be sure that if if we're going to help the airline industry, that okay, uh, that, that people don't get laid off and that we we're not outsourcing maintenance uh, to other countries.
0: How do you envision? What would be a new regulation? I mean, folks, this is ancient history now, but the gentleman from Cornell decided we should be regulated, and Bob Crandall fought it for years along with everybody else. And look what we wrought. I mean, the quality air service today, I'll be blunt, folks, I fly international carriers as often as I can. Bob Crandall, what does the new regulation look like?
7: No, 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 well, you you keep in mind, Tom, I I was a guy that said we should not deregulate. I always thought we should have some version of regulation. I think we should now. I mean, look, we invested in the airline industry after nine We're going to invest in the airline industry now. I don't think we ought to regulate it the way we used to. But I do think that if the public's going to make an investment in the airline industry, that it is entitled to to know that the airline industry isn't going to turn around and lay off uh, a lot of people while it's taking money from the public. The airline industry isn't going to turn around and abandon cities to, that don't uh, meet the profit metric. It isn't going to turn around and take its own free cash flow and buy back shares. Yeah. So, it's, so, it's, so there's a, there are some, it, you know, f- don't use the word regulation, let's use the word constraint. <clears throat> there are going to be some constraints on a business that needs to be regarded, in my view, as something of a public utility.
3: And actually, that's certain. uh, some of those provisions are being included currently in a House bill being circulated to prevent uh, share buybacks and certain executive compensation when it comes to the airline industry. But, Robert, I'd love to get your sense. Who's to blame for the 96% of free cash flow that went to buying back shares of the airlines over the past 10 years?
7: Well, who's to blame for it? Obviously, the the folks that are running the airlines are the folks that decided to do that and i you know the boards of directors as well as the uh, executives are actually running the business uh, and and that's just a foolish thing to do in an industry like the airline industry you you always know there's it, it there's a black swan waiting around the corner <clears throat> and back in the day when airlines weren't as consolidated as they are today and therefore were not as profitable one of the rules of the road is uh, you you never bought back stock. You didn't pay dividends. You didn't and you didn't buy back stock because you needed a you needed a, a well of cash to go to when something bad happens to you. Something bad always happens to the airline industry.
2: Bob, forgive me for playing devil's advocate, but sure. why should we give money to an industry that's very very difficult to be in? You know, as a former CEO. To run an airline is incredibly complex, really quite difficult. Why does the government want any part of that whatsoever?
7: No, it doesn't want any part of it. I don't want want the government to take over the airline business, good Lord. But I do think that the government, in the interest of employment and the interest of the economy, look, the travel business, including the airline industry, accounts for millions and millions of jobs. I mean, all over this country, it's probably the world's largest employer. In terms of and so every country, including the United States, needs a vibrant, healthy travel and tourism industry, and it needs to keep the airlines going. Now, apparently, France is talking about nationalizing France. I don't. I don't think we want to nationalize our airlines. I do think we need to make available long-term, very low-interest loans, and while those loans are outstanding, we need to impose Uh some constraints on the business.
0: Uh, Bloomberg 1130 New York. Good morning. Let me ask this pregnant question here. Bob, why are airports so lousy? What do we need to do to speed up the rebirth and rekindling of our airports?
7: We need to invest more money in them, Tom. But look, they, they, our, our airports, they, there's been a continuing battle for years and years and years and years, <clears throat> years that that the, the airports, the airports uh, as a group, would like to impose higher individuals travel charges on the public. So the, how do you finance airports? Today, in this country, we don't finance them publicly using taxes. We we finance them by, by transaction charges on individual passengers. The airports w- would like to raise those charges. The, air, the airlines, recognizing that as prices go up, uh, the, the desirability of travel goes down, have resisted that effort. But we have lousy airports because we don't invest enough money in
0: them. Bob Crandall, it's been great. Thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it, Mr. Crandall of American Airlines. Without question, the interview of the day, and not with someone with medicine, but someone with a deep knowledge of how China reports uh, data. Leland Miller is with China Beige Book, and we're thrilled that he could join us uh, right now. Just immensely qualified on the veracity of their data leland miller or daniel moss has written uh maybe not and i've seen a lot of other pros like carl weinberg say ah uh, maybe not do you believe the statistics out of china right now on their better news on virus
8: you know i, I believe the the virus news is getting better there's definitely there's definitely a slowdown down the rate of infections. the problem is you can't believe the actual numbers because right now there's a political narrative that the party has swooped in, <clears throat> saved everybody, and is responsible for this wonderful uh, virus cleanup. And so as long as there is a p- big political push to make this a, a, an issue of, of politics and, and not, uh, not strictly the, the medical area, then you never know what numbers to believe. I think things are getting better, but the exact numbers, I think it'd be very dangerous to take them seriously.
3: And Leland, the one reason why it's always great to get you on is because you look at non-official data to gauge the actual economic activity in the entire region. And I'd love to get your sense of what you've observed as far as how quickly they've brought business back online. We have heard from the party that things are going very quickly and very well, and they're expecting a full recovery very quickly. Are you seeing that borne out in sort of the anecdotal evidence that you look at?
8: Yeah, the idea of a full recovery is nonsense anytime soon. Uh, Firms are going back to work. Now, we are seeing uh, workforces back, and people are outside, and factories are starting to run again, and lights are on. But you're not seeing a resumption in any of the growth metrics. So one of the more disappointing things we saw is that even in the first half of March, when we were getting our data in, firms were going back to work. I mean, the, the, the share of closures, the, the firms reporting closures was way down as we extended into March, but the data were not getting better. And the problem with this is that, that China is very anxious to have a recovery narrative. They announced their bad data for January and February, and now they want to get on with the recovery. But the recovery is not so fast. Uh, you're actually seeing <clears> the worst data we've ever seen, without question, right now. Right, and Q1 is likely, you know, around a negative okay. 10, negative 11 contraction.
0: Give us a Leland Miller example of wacko data that matters. Like, is it the number of you know crew members on iron ore ships, or is it you know counting containers? as simple out of Shanghai as you can. I mean, what's a what's a data point that matters to you to gauge that?
8: Well, you know it. it, it very different this quarter than any other quarter we've ever tracked. But it's typically what we do is is we go through the weeds and we try to find the areas of strength, but also the real areas of weakness that others haven't identified. And when we looked across the spectrum this quarter, everything was weaker. Every sector was weaker. Every region was weaker. Every headline metric was weaker and not just weaker, but the weakest numbers we've ever seen all of them in uh, severe contraction. Leland. So it, this, Different, different, different ball game this quarter.
3: Leland, I want to go back to what you said—the ten to eleven percent contraction in the first quarter. Can you extrapolate that out based on what you're seeing in terms of a pickup or or not in in recovery in the second quarter and beyond? What are you looking at for the full annualized GDP for 2020 in China right now?
8: Right. Well, it, the the outlook's getting a bit gloomier for China, even though their economy is getting better. And what I mean by that is. This is no longer just a domestic China story. Even if there is an enormous level of domestic resilience and the party pushes everyone back to work and output and consumption and demand are all uh, back faster than anyone could possibly uh, you know, assume would be the case, you have a problem with the rest of the globe shutting down. So Q2 was supposed to be the time in which Chinese factories were back up and running and then you would have global demand take over now, Euro, U.S. factories are down. Europe's down. Demand is cratering worldwide. So, the idea that Chinese will have a recovering Q <clears> two, <throat> right. sure, from, an, from a contraction, it's not going to be back to normal levels of growth.
0: What would happen to China if the president came out and lifted the various trade initiatives he's put in place? I mean, is that beneficial to China, or is that a U.S. story?
8: Well, look, if you, had, if you had an end to the supply shock and the demand shock and you pulled back all these trade initiatives, I think you'd see a, 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 quite, a, quite a juice to growth. Uh, the problem is is right now there's no demand. There's no global demand. So you're having a, yeah. a resumption of, of business as usual in China over the next couple of months, but there's no demand, nas- uh, no demand internationally uh, from the major trading partners. Yeah. So right now you'd have no effect uh, or very little effect, if any.
0: Okay, Leland Miller, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much with China Beige Book. Just very, very informative this morning. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.